this opens a new chapter in our relations with all nations of this hemisphere. And it testifies to the maturity and the good judgment and the decency of our people. This agreement is a symbol for the world of the mutual respect and cooperation among all our nations. Thank you very much for your help in this. After years of negotiations for a new Panama Canal Treaty, an agreement was reached between the U.S. and Panama in 1977. Signed on September 7, 1977, the treaty recognized Panama as the territorial sovereign in the canal zone, but gave the United States the right to continue operating the canal until December 31, 1999. Despite considerable opposition in the U.S. Senate, the treaty was approved by a one-vote margin in September 1978. It went into effect on October 1979, and the canal came under the control of the Panama Canal Commission, an agency of five Americans and two Panamanians. On September 7, 1977, President Carter had also signed the Neutrality Treaty with Torrijos, which guaranteed the permanent neutrality of the canal and gave the United States the right to use military force if necessary. This treaty was used as rationale for the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama, which then saw the overthrow of Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, who had threatened to prematurely seize control of the canal after being indicted in the U.S. on drug charges. Finally, in January 2021, actor, writer, artist, and musician Christian Huey left his hometown of Austin, Texas for the tiny Panamanian beach town of Pettisey. The creator and host of the podcast, All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, Huey is, right this very moment, delivering a tortured introduction to episode 18, making a feeble gesture at linking his new digs to the subject matter of this year's show. Hola! Rano fights and Russellarias. It's true, this podcast has risen from the grave at last. 2020 is finally behind us, and as our civilization slowly rebuilds from its ashes and the human spirit proves once again indomitable against all the odds, the band known as Sparks is still swinging away. Will they keep their 2021 tour dates? Who knows? Can Ron and Russ cut a deal with the Biden administration to get them and everyone on the Sparks payroll vaccinated in time? Can we get vaccinated in time? No clue. Am I still carrying the COVID-19 antibodies from my infection back around last Christmas? Stop asking prying questions. 
But here's something we do know. The long-awaited documentary about our favorite brothers is actually, really, really, actually, really here. The Edgar Wright-directed The Sparks Brothers debuted at the Sundance Festival on January 30, and the reviews are great. Jordan Hoffman of The Guardian writes, This is a film that loves its subjects, and only someone with a biological revulsion to catchy pop or grand rock theatrics will dislike the film. Jessica Kiang of Variety says, Edgar Wright delivers a fabulous tribute to Sparks, the band that has been the next big thing for 50-odd, very odd, years. Frank Sheck of The Hollywood Reporter gushes, a bit of judicious editing would seem to be in order with the version premiering at Sundance, perhaps most suitable as a director's cut on home video format. I confess, I have not yet seen the movie and it doesn't seem to be available in a digital streaming format just yet, but I do know already that several of the great folks that I've mentioned on this pod and some who have even made appearances on this pod are featured in the doc, and that is super exciting to me. Of course, the trailer is widely available on the internet. You can see it on YouTube and lots of other platforms, and I literally just found out that uh, Den of Geek has a fascinating meta-doc about the making of the Sparks Brothers. Obviously, this is a thrilling time to be a Sparks fan, and from a personal perspective, it's been rewarding to see this here humble podcast pick up new listeners from uh, recent converts to the Church of Mail. Finally, it's the main impetus, the documentary, for me bringing this show back from suspended animation. As always, you can write me at podcastsparks at gmail.com, or you can find All You Ever Think About is Sparks on Facebook. We have a page. Uh, speaking of uh, Facebook, I highly recommend joining the official, there is now an official Sparks fan page, has been for many months now, uh, called Reinforcements. Um, it is uh, curated, uh, moderated, I believe, by Sue Harris, the uh, manager. Uh, as well as uh, some non-official groups I recommend checking out, like Indiscreet, where you can chat with Sparks obsessos from around the globe, up to and including the equator. Speaking of equator, today is March 10, which makes it Equator Day! Can you believe it's already been another year? Wow! Okay. So, the episode introduction has now been introduced. Let's get on with the show at hand. Episode 18... Big Beat Part 2. We're starting off right where we left off, halfway through side two of the album. Song 9 on Big Beat and the third track on side two is the throbbing mid-tempo rocker Screwed Up. Picking back up where the faux dum-dum boys numbers like Big Boy and Everybody Stupid left off, the song comes off as a similar blend of kiss-like rock by numbers with the vaguely cubist and less vaguely sexist lyrics from Ron. Let's tackle the music part first. Jeff Salen kicks off the track with eight pairs of simple power chords, F, F, C, C, down to D, D, and back up to C, C, which we then recognize will be the tonic note of the song. Once our home base of C is established, the rest of the band locks in and barely changes pace or direction. Of immediate note is how simply, but how powerfully, 
Salmeida's bass mimics uh, Salen's opening chords. The first few bars have Meda showing remarkable constraint, letting just uh, two bottomless pulses plumb the depths of the low end, guided by Hilly Michael's hits on the two and the four. As the song unfolds through its first verse, Meda introduces a bit more complexity, adding transitional notes to walk up and down the frets, uh, never wavering far from a strict C major scale. At the top of verse one, Russell, via Ron's lyrics, gives us a brief summary of the story up to this point. In 1900, you held hands and felt like you'd scored. In 1910, you'd never need a horse anymore. In 1920, you could dance. In 1930, lose your pants. In 1940, you could go to war. Really soon. Ron is setting us up for some kind of critique about American life post-1970. Let's see where he goes. In 1950, you could just be dull and a bore. In 1960, set the world on fire. Here is where Hilly signals a change in direction with a well-placed fill. By the way, uh, I just want to interject as we go on here. Uh, as uh, someone who is not a drummer, I don't have um, really much musical knowledge about drumming. Uh, I, I wish I could speak uh, greater justice to Hilly's um, contributions and, uh, and his talents here. Uh, but you'll just have to settle for, you know, whatever uh, Music 101 uh, education I've got in my, my head. That was then, this is now, and nothing's blowing in the wind. That's a nice little uh, nod to Dylan, right? And then we tumble back down to sea again, like Atlas shrugging off the weight of the world. And then we've got a chorus where Russell slash Ron gives us their verdict on USA circa 1976. Still in C major, with those same uh, steady, predictable, tentative climbs up the scale, and then a tumble back down to the tonic. Another effort back up to F, a stumble back, and a final short-lived struggle up to G, and another inevitable crash back to the bottom on the line ending in spreading around. Screwed up, that's the problem. You're going down, 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 down. Here, by the way, Jeff Salen's guitar mimics uh, the lyrics with these simple descending lines, down, 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 down. Screwed up, that's your problem. You're coming unwound, wound, wound, wound. And then another fill from Hilly. You're wasting time seeking comfort from any sight or any sound. I knew, I knew you when you weren't a bit screwed up. Now what you got is spreading around.
Getting on my nerves and everything you're throwing at me's coming up is song 10 on Big Beat, White Women. Out of all the songs on the album that's sure to raise an eyebrow, or at least upon a face reading, White Women takes the vanilla frosting. Who knows what Ron really means by the lyrics? Who knows if he's just wearing a mask, uh, if he's taking on a character like that pedophilic creepo in the later song, Young Girls. Who knows if he's uh, laying on the irony thick, and who knows if this was like a preemptive anti-PC move decades before that became a posture with its own intrinsic value among certain segments of society. Is it racist? Is it sexist? Is it pro-white women, anti-white women, anti-any other race of women, anti-women? As one commenter on songmeanings.com pointed out, the fact that the narrator won believes in the biblical Adam, and two, believes that Adam would have been white, drops the first clue that Ron's tongue is buried firmly in his cheek. Oh, and courtesy friend of the pod, Rude Swart, from his new visual series, Sparks the Albums Project, here are Ron and Russ in their own words, introducing the songs of the then new record. This is Ron. Warning. Especially for the next song, do not take all of our songs literally, Russell. The Rolling Stones and people had songs praising the brown people and the black people all over the world with tunes like Brown Sugar. Well, here's our answer to them. It's a little song off a big beat. It's called White Women. Here's a straight reading of Ron's lyrics, and then we'll talk about the music. What's good enough for Adam is good enough for me. I'm awfully glad we got him. They're easy to see, as long as they're white women everywhere. There is always a replacement, anytime, anywhere. They walk without a swagger. The power is on the wane, but something deep within me cries out all the same. It's got to be white women every day. To me, it doesn't matter that their skin's passe. As long as they're white, as long as they're white, as long as they're white from head to toe. As long as they're white, as long as they're white, as long as they're white, I'll have a go. White women everywhere. The places that I'm cruising, the places that I stay, are filled with Anglo-Saxons, and I get my way. White women every day. You can see them blush, at least by the light of day. I've tried most every package, from Peking to Berdu. I'm sticking with a brand name. I'm sticking with you, because you're a white woman. So very fair. Because you're a white woman. 
So, very fair. It's a nice double entendre there at the end, because you're a white woman, so very fair. Uh, rather than white women being another three-chord stomper, Hilly's pounding syncopated pattern at the top of the song suggests that this song has a different musical DNA than the uh, fairly simple rock of the rest of the album. But soon in the song, Hilly switches to a ticket-to-ticket rhythm on the hi-hat, and Ron and Sal's loping piano and bass combo kind of take us back to those cabaret sounds of early Sparks. White Women is an F-sharp major with no huge compositional surprises, but two things leap out to me about this recording. Hilly Michaels has said that Salmeida was his favorite player to work with, bass player. And White Women goes a long way in showing just how locked in those guys were with each other, not just rhythmically, but stylistically. More than anyone involved in the recording or the production of Big Beat, it's Sal and Hilly who really seem to understand what Big Beat is all about, sonically speaking. Hint, it's the Big Beat. That they both attack a cabaret number with the same primal gusto as the rockers on the album, that shows how well the musical mind meld holds Big Beat together. It also explains why Hilly demanded Salmeida stay on for the forthcoming tour rather than play with another bassist with whom he just couldn't quite gel. More on that later. Another thing, Russell gets a well-earned chance to cut loose vocally on white women. No, there's nothing like the wine glass shattering heights of his Equator-era falsetto. Instead, he gets to bellow out a cathartic call and response, uh, lobbing the same serve to himself, returning with even more oomph as he shouts, as long as they're white, as long as they're white, as long as they're white from head to toe. He adds an ethereal, high-pitched descant to the song's musical bed later on, and that serves as a great contrast to his unusually testosterone-heavy rantings. White women may be little more than a curio in an album that's become a curio itself, but it's not without its charm. Here comes White Women. enough for autumn is good enough for me I'm awfully glad we got them they're easy to see as long as there are white women everywhere there's always a replacement anytime anywhere they walk without a swagger their powers on the wane but something deep within me cries out for the same it's gotta be white women every day to me, it doesn't matter that their skin's passe. As long as they're white, as long as they're white, as long as they're white from head to toe. As long as they're white, as long as they're white, as long as they're white, I'll have a go. White women everywhere. I'm talking about white women everywhere The places that I'm cruising, the places that I stay Are filled with Anglo-Saxons and I get my way White women every day 
You can see him blush at this by light of day I've tried most every package from Peking to Purdue I'm sticking with the brand name, I'm sticking with you White woman, very fair I'm talking about white women, so very fair He's gotta be white women everywhere final track on the original release of Big Beat should be a familiar one to Sparks fans up to this point. The song that finally found a home after being shelved at least twice, I Like Girls, closes out the album in a way the rest of the album doesn't really prepare the listener for. A couple of reasons for this perception. Uh, One, the song was originally written in 1972 and recorded in upstate New York with Sparks Mark I the version of the band with the Mankey Brothers and Harley Feinstein, uh, but that uh, recording was shelved, never released. It was later recorded again by the Kimono My House band, but it was shelved again. Also, the version that you hear on this album at the end of Big Beat was indeed produced by Rupert Holmes, but the instrumentation and the production were more in line with the recording sessions that resulted in the I Want to Hold Your Hand single from late in 1975. Thus, lush, intricate, heavy on horns and strings was on the menu during those sessions, as opposed to the simple garage rock of the later big beat sessions. The irony of this strange gestation of the song is that this final version of I Like Girls, uh, more marching band glam than proto-punk, sounds less like the rest of big beat than the original 1972 recording did. But hold the phone. Rupert later admitted that the cut that landed on the actual album may have been itself a different cut from those 1975 uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand sessions as well. And it may have been a compromise between the Big Beat style recording and that unreleased Hold Your Hand style recording. As Rupert Holmes wrote to Leslie Hannigan years later, So it's possible that no one has ever heard the truly orchestral mix of I Like Girls. I'll have to see if my friend and producing partner still has a copy. It's quite grand in scale. I'll let you know if I have any luck finding the original Wagnerian mix of I Like Girls. By the way, if you are listening and you happen to have that mix, send it to me. I would love to hear it. 
The official version of I Like Girls was released in several, but not all, markets as a single, and it was the second and final single released out of Big Beat, uh, backed with England in most markets. The single was a flop, barely sold at all. As a song on the Big Beat album, however, it's a definite highlight. The nine-note horn blast beginning at the uh, on this big beat version of I Like Girls may be the most heraldic musical moment on the album. For listeners who find the majority of big beat kind of colorless or lacking in inspiration or fun, it's a lovely palette cleanser of a closing track. It's much more looks, looks, looks than everybody's stupid. It's compositionally more complex, too. Uh, instead of a song like Screwed Up, which is in the key of C major and keeps to some variant on a 1-5-4 progression, I Like Girls starts in the key of C as well, but it follows a considerably less linear path. you got a major 1 to a minor 6 to a major 4, a major 5, a major 1, a major 5, major 1, a major 5, a minor 3rd. Th- uh, and a chorus that goes uh, minor second, minor third, um, major first, uh, minor third, minor sixth, minor third, major first, and minor third. All over the place. We also have a uh, transposition up a whole step near the end of the song to kind of kick the song into a higher gear before it closes out, before it closes out on the note of D. All of the snaking melodies and unexpected detours, not to mention Russell's falsetto popping its flowery head up during the middle eight, all make for a satisfying sound for sore ears. If, of course, as a listener and Sparks fan, you weren't completely on board for the rest of the album's proceedings. The only thing somewhat in keeping with the rest of Big Beat thematically here are Ron's bordering on obsessive lyrics about, eh, you got it, girls. Here are those lyrics. No one is restricted, no one is tied down, but the grease of old collapsed because no one liked their girls. We won't have that problem, I'm doing my part. No one asked me, but I'll still answer. La 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 la. I like girls, I like girls, I like girls, I like girls. I sweat in the daytime. I don't sweat much at night. No one asked me, but I still answer. I like girls, I like girls. All those who are with me, Let's all raise our hands high. When they ask you, you'll surely answer. I like girls, I like girls, you know. Day of wedding preparation, you must decide. Has your choice been made? Yes. I like girls. I like girls. Written before Ron found stardom as a pinup idol, at least in some parts of the world, I like girls' lyrics may be somewhat more autobiographical than usual here. I sweat in the daytime. I don't sweat much at night. Those are some of Ron's more uh, on-the-nose lyrics about not getting any. And the la-la-las of the chorus conjure up pretty funny images of Ron plugging his ears and trying to drown out the arbitrary dronings of anyone who's not, nor wants to talk about girls. There may be also secondary intent to the lyrics, a defensive posture, conspicuously overkill response when one's sexuality or masculinity are called into question. You can imagine such a scenario taking place during Sparks's ill-fated first sojourn through rural Texas during a time when cowboys versus hippies had replaced cowboys versus Indians. Hey, you a sissy boy or what? Here is that final song off the original pressing of Big Beat, I Like Girls. (laughs) 
declaration being into chicks was the final recorded word that listeners in 1976 would hear from sparks until their subsequent outing in 1977 future cd releases of big beat however made room for several bonus tracks interesting thing about many of these bonus tracks is that even though they were released on uh, future versions of big beat most of them were actually recorded during the 1975 Indiscreet Sessions with Tony Bisconti. The tracks we're going to take a look at here are Tearing the Place Apart, Gone with the Wind, Intrusion slash Confusion, Looks Aren't Everything, as well as I Want to Hold Your Hand and England. But uh, we already discussed I Want to Hold Your Hand and England in a previous episode, so we're going to skip those. Let's start with Tearing the Place Apart. Another welcome return to the cabaret sounds of earlier Sparks and a superior song to White Women, in my opinion, which did make the cut onto Big Beat. Tearing the Place Apart is an uncharacteristically touching and straightforward breakup song. Of course, a cursory listen to the first few notes of the tune, and it's clear that this was not originally a Big Beat outtake. Again, it's an uh, outtake from 1975's Discreet from the busy bass playing to that 1930s-style muted horns, Tearing the Place Apart sounds a lot more Lawrence Welk than Kiss, and that's not at all meant as an insult. It's unclear who all is playing on this track, but it would seem reasonable to assume that we've got, uh, once again, the great Tony Visconti producing and handling all those arrangements. Originally released on the Stop Gap LP, The Best of Sparks, in 1977, Tearing the Place Apart was released as a CD bonus track on the 1994 Island Masters series release of Big Beat, as well as the 21st Century Edition release from 2006. Here are the lyrics to the song. It's so easy. Tearing the Place Apart. I'm getting rid of every memory. I don't know where to start. So many memories all around me, now that you've gone to someone else. Give me a reason I should keep our world that is acres deep, in which you touched, in which you saw, in which you were. It's so easy. Tearing the place apart. Each square of vinyl that you stepped on, pulled up and thrown away, and burns with linen that we slept on. All of my collections, out they go. Stamps of all nations where we'd been, and we had been everywhere. They're ripped in two, 
They're ripped in four. They're in the wind. It's so easy. I'm stumbling. I'm crumbling, tearing the place apart, tearing the place apart. Down come the chandeliers that lit our cozy little dinners, shattered forevermore. One thing is certain. I'll grow thinner. No need to eat with company. No need to eat at all, I guess. Away go the cabinets, so fully stocked from soup to nuts to aubergine. I'm stumbling, I'm crumbling, tearing the place apart, tearing the place apart, tearing the place apart. I'll rip the doors off with the hinges. Who needs a door at all? The world can walk in, and I'll let them. Help yourself to a magazine. Help yourself to anything. Go and take anything. They're only things. They're only things. They're only things. It's so easy. So that line, it's so easy, that starts off the song, for me, reminds me of another Queen song that was released on the 1974 Sheer Heart Attack album. It was the line that Freddie Mercury sings at the top of In the Lap of the Gods. Interesting. Was that something Ron was aware of? Was he harkening back to that in some way? I don't know. Tearing the Place Apart stands as one of the greatest unreleased Sparks songs of its era, in my opinion. It's a shame to think that there could have been room for It Ain't 1918, but not this bittersweet gem on Indiscreet. Maybe Ron and Russ found it too sappy, too sincere, but it's also refreshingly honest and cathartic songwriting, even if, even if it's just a character, not Ron himself, you know, who cares to share lines like, no need to eat with company, no need to eat at all, I guess. It's still pretty affecting stuff. Let's hear Tearing the Place Apart. It's so easy tearing the place apart I'm getting rid of every memory I don't know where to start So many memories all around me Now that you've gone to someone else Give me a reason I should keep Or would the desires deep In what you touched, in what you saw In what you were, it's so easy tearing the players apart It's where a valor that you stepped on Pulled up and thrown away And burned with linen that we slept on All my collections out they go Stamps of all nations where we've been And we had been everywhere They're written to, they're written for They're in the wind, it's so easy The walls, they just enclosed us They're crumbling, they're crumbling I'm stumbling, I'm crumbling Tearing the place apart Tearing the place apart Down come the chandeliers That lids are cozy little dinners Shattered forevermore From soup to nuts to aubergine
Next is Gone with the Wind. Another indiscreet outtake, Gone with the Wind is a rather rare Russell-penned song, possibly about a young couple going out on a date to see the classic film, but who stopped paying attention midway through due to their mutual adolescent distractions. Where nearly all of indiscreet was maximalist and layered like the world's largest musical lasagna, Gone with the Wind breaks completely with the production choices Sparks indulged in for much of that album. Instead, Sparks here point the way forward to their future career as a stripped-down synth duo, what with Ron using one of the synthier-sounding voices on his keyboard and using it to plunk out the song's sparse bass line. At first, the song is built upon a minimalist interplay of a simple drum hit, a short twang of acoustic guitar, and that synth line from Ron revolving around low C. As Russell reaches the song's chorus, Ron underscores his vocals with a simple lilting organ line in a glissando. As the song progresses, it takes on an otherworldly blend of a folk ditty and a craftwork tune. Not a major spark song by any means, Gone with the Wind is nonetheless an important musical signpost for the brothers. Firstly, it's one of Russell's better songwriting attempts, and secondly, it's conspicuous in the way it channels, while not quite the disco-fied, floor-filling version of Spark circa 1979, perhaps... The DIY synth plus Lindrum setup of Sparks circa 1983. Here are Russell's lyrics. Burn Atlanta tonight. Hey, for a buck, we could stay here all night. Long live the Confederate plight. It's history. It drags on and on. It wasn't my fault that it lasted till dawn. Your mammy's got to think like me. It's praised by the Academy. And she'd rather gable than your dad. So tell her, please, I'm an innocent lad. I'm telling her. Gone with the wind. There's a lot to be said for it, but I can't think just what. We didn't watch a lot. Gone with the wind. There's a lot to be said for it, but I don't know just what. We didn't catch the plot, but we could mention that the South might rise again. Cut. Now we want you to fall down the stairs without breaking your fall, using no hands at all. That's fine. Now again from the top, and make sure your face is not seen when you drop. So, here is... Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. 
Atlanta tonight. Hey, for a buck, we could stay here all night. Long live the Confederate flight. It's history, it drags on and on. It wasn't my fault, it lasted till dawn. Your mammy's got to think like me, it's praised by the Academy. And she'd rather gable than your dad. So tell her, please, I'm an innocent lad. I'm telling her, gone with the wind. There's a lot to be said for it, but I can't think just what. We didn't watch a lot. Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I don't know just what. We didn't catch the plot, but we could mention that the South might rise again. Now we want you to fall down the stairs without breaking your fall, using no hands at all. That's fine now, again from the top. And make sure your faces not seem when you drop. So, what did you do today? I failed down the stairs today. But more and Vivian need the dough for the basic fee. We're telling you, gone with the wind, there's a lot. Said for it, but I don't know just what. They don't tell my type the plot. Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I couldn't say just what. All I did was bruise a lot, but they mentioned that the South will rise again. The South will rise again. But frankly, Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I don't know just what without spoiling the plot. Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I don't know just what we didn't watch a lot. Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I couldn't say just what all I did was bruise a lot. Gone with the wind, there's a lot to be said for it, but I couldn't say just what. Out of necessity, I'm afraid I'm skipping the bonus track, Intrusion Slash Confusion. Supposedly the unused Jacques Tati-approved version of Confusion. I don't possess the recording. I haven't found it readily available, at least not in any format that I can access at the moment. A friend of the pod, Rude Swart, confirms that it's honestly not that much different from the eventual big beat version of Confusion. Hope you're not too disappointed, but let's move on to our ultimate track, Looks Aren't Everything. Yet another outtake from those ridiculously prolific, indiscreet sessions, Looks Aren't Everything didn't enjoy a proper release until the big beat reissues of 1994 and 2006. It's a whale of a song, a chugging rocker accompanied by Ron's piano, which he bangs away at in a style that I've heard XTC's Andy Partridge describe as banana-fingered. I'm not 100% sure who all is playing on the recording, but my best guess would be Trevor White on guitar, Ian Hampton on bass, Dinky Diamond on drums, in addition to Ron's piano and synth, and of course, Russell, who is in peak vocal form here. The lyrics are some of Ron's more obtuse. Nonetheless, we can get a fairly clear impression of the song's narrator. 
Our protagonist, who could be God, or could simply see himself as the next best thing, is the polar opposite of Ron's usual go-to character. You know, the frustrated outsider, lacking in self-confidence, unsure how to plug into society, or society's ladies. This guy, with his brassy declarations of, By Jove! is the Alpha's Alpha. Maybe more cultivated and less boorish than the big boy of the song Big Boy, but still smarmy in his overweening self-assuredness. What does he mean when he shares his epiphany that looks aren't everything? Does he mean, yeah, sure, I've got looks in spades, but not, but let's not forget all of those other great qualities of mine. That is he literally God reminding all the humans that he crafted in his image of his existence? Frustrated they're not paying attention to his power and his glory anymore? I don't have any special insight here, so you go ahead and take a crack yourself, but here are the lyrics. I bought a car. It's yellow. I drove around a lot. I caught a fish and fried it. I ate it on the spot. Hot! And that's my year in review. With you, things could be different. By Jove, I think I've got it. By Jove, it's come at last. By Jove, there's fingers on it. By Jove, it's come at last. For the one who has made us all can't be seen even if you're tall. Sleep, sound, and dream, you've earned it. A most impressive day. Deeds and props rewarded. It's almost Saturday. Yay! I like you more when the view and you are less than perfect. Wake up, the dawn's upon us. No, don't go run and hide. I've got some jokes to tell you, and God is on your side. For the one who has made us all can't be seen, even if you're tall. We'll move into the city where we just bought a house, and nature's non-existent. But there, they understand that. By Jove, I think we've got it. By Jove, it's come at last. By Jove, there's fingers on it. By Jove... It's come at last. For the one who has made us all can't be seen even by the tall. For the one who has made us all can't be seen even if you're tall. Here is that song, Looks Aren't Everything. Looks aren't everything. I bought a car, it's yellow. I drove around a lot I caught a fish and fried it I ate it on the spot Hot And that's my year in review With you things could be different Looks aren't everything Looks aren't everything Looks aren't everything But Jove, I think I've got it But Jove, it's coming last but Jove, there's wrinkles on it But Jove, it's coming last For the one who has made a soul Can't be seen even if you're tall Loose aren't everything Sleep, sound and dream, you've earned it A most impressive day Good deeds and thoughts rewarded It's almost Saturday Say I like you more when the view and you are less than perfect Looks aren't everything, looks aren't everything, looks aren't everything Wake up, the dawn's upon us, no, don't go run and hide I've got some jokes to tell you, and God is on your side The one who has made a soul can't be seen, even if you're tall Looks aren't everything 
moving to the city Where we'll get softer hands And nature's non-existence But there they understand That looks on I've mentioned, Big Beat did not sell well, and it didn't produce any hits for Sparks. But oddly, the album's cover has become one of the most iconic images of the Mail Brothers. Ron and Russ wanted to work with a big-name photographer in New York City to help develop the sleeve for this new album. Richard Avedon accepted the job when they asked, but the photo session was highly formal, impersonal, and lasted a mere 15 minutes. It was like taking a ticket at a deli and waiting for your name to be called. But Abaddon's studio ran a tight ship and they got results. The black and white cover of Big Beat has since become iconic. The stark juxtaposition of the side-facing, mustached Ron, all bones and angles and detached aloofness with the bare-chested, more open-postured Russell did a better job of communicating how Sparks wanted the world to see them than they had occasionally done themselves through their music. Ron and Russ are meant to be a yin and yang, a Laurel and Hardy, a Burns and Allen, ego versus id. That Avedon was able to capture this element of the duo in such a fleeting bit of time and never having even met the males before, that speaks to his world-class talent. They didn't even really get a back cover out of Avedon. Rather than featuring the other band members, which, by the way, should have been an early warning to them that their contributions to Sparks was designed to be short-lived from the get-go, Columbia Records simply selected a nearly identical image from that session, but with a slightly different pose from Russell to print the album's credits over. Now, if I've missed something here and different markets got a different back cover, please set me straight. What that album cover did not convey was what the listener could expect when they placed the disc on their platter. No instruments can be seen. There's really nothing tipping you off about the style of music. There's no other musicians. There's nothing but the stoic black and white image. And that would serve as a Rorschach test of sorts for critics and record buyers to set whatever expectations these folks had in their heads about the music inside. A tour was set to commence on November 6, 1976, the very same day the United States had elected a new president with a new direction that he pledged to take the country, fresh beginnings all around. For various reasons, however, Sparks was left having to retool their live act, and once again, in a hurry, Jeff Salen was let go for reasons that are unclear, while Sal Maida 
opted to remain in New York to continue working with his permanent band, Milk and Cookies. Hilly Michaels was kept on board, but they had precious little time to scour the clubs and want ads for a new bassist, and it was decided that they would recruit both a rhythm and a lead guitarist to handle all those guitar parts on stage. While still in New York, they settled on Jimmy McAllister to handle rhythm guitar, and upon decamping again to Los Angeles, they soon recruited Luke Zamperini to play lead. Still without a satisfactory bassist, they took a second look at a guy that Sparks had originally turned down back in NYC, and they flew him to the West Coast for intensive, grueling rehearsal sessions. His name was David Swanson, and despite his best efforts, his tenure would prove brief. In a strange move from a booking standpoint, Sparks played their first show in Santa Barbara, opening for mainstream rock act Boston. Especially compared to the headlining act, who were then riding high off the strength of the sales of their debut album, Sparks was disappointed by their own performance that night. Hilly felt compelled to pinpoint to Ron and Russ exactly what he saw as the source of the problem. Said Hilly, David was a good bass player, but it was just not a good match. Me and David as a rhythm section trying to reproduce the feel and energy of Big Beat. One more disappointing show later, and Hilly insisted that it was the bass that was the problem, and that studio bassist Salmeda was the only missing ingredient in a successful live act for the Big Beat tour. Outgoing bassist David Swanson was visibly upset at getting sacked, and although Hilly harbored some guilt for his vote of no confidence, once Meda agreed to leave New York and rejoin Sparks, quote, We all lit up. I just felt like a huge weight had been lifted off me. You can't lose with a drummer when Sal Maida is playing with you. Okay, then again, it all depends on your definition of lose. As it would happen, Sparks' next gig would be their infamous performance in the disaster flick Roller Coaster, and that experience left everyone in Sparks' world with a sour taste in their mouth. It was an inauspicious way to kick off their U.S. tour, and the fact that they soon got noticed as, quote, that band in that shitty movie I saw on the airplane on the way here, that was not the sort of attention that they were after. Once back on the road, problems continually crept up. Sparks were paired up with a guy whom Hilly Michaels dubbed, quote, the road manager from hell. Jim Sider made his bones in the 60s playing with the birds, and he now found himself on the bitter fringes of the California rock scene, out of his element, grudgingly driving around these new bands he had never heard of and couldn't or wouldn't understand. He and Sparks did not get on well, although according to Hilly, Ron and Russell took the disrespectful treatment in stride. But perhaps the strangest and most uncomfortable part of the Big Beat tour was the choice by management to pair Sparks with Patti Smith for a dozen shows in late 76. Patti Smith had established a huge following since her proto-punk classic Horses and just released a new album. She was guaranteed to bring out enormous audiences, which in theory Sparks could have benefited from. But Smith's intellectual pretensions and her self-seriousness, not to mention the starkness of her music and lyrics, it set her poles apart from the whimsy and the playfulness of Sparks' aesthetic. Sparks fans knew Ron's lyrics flirted with heavy ideas and that his compositions were frequently ambitious in terms of pop music. But Patti Smith's fans responded to Sparks' appearances like junkies whose dope had been replaced by seltzer. 
the chin strokers, who made up a large chunk of Smith's fan base, had a little interest in the ironic pop of Sparks, nor this neo-vaudeville look of Ron and Russell, who seemed to approach rock and roll like it were some kind of parlor game. As Hilly, again, later put it, Sparks and Patti Smith on the same bill for a good dozen shows or so, Fellini couldn't have thought of anything that weird. It was like a grandiose, traveling, musical oddities tour for a while. Even though both bands' managements agreed to alternate the headlining act between shows, the friction between the two camps was obvious. While the rivalry sometimes pushed both acts to try even harder to win over both factions of the crowds, and perhaps besting the other group by comparison, things occasionally got ugly. In Montreal, Patti Smith was so intimidated by a Sparks-loving crowd, she barricaded herself in her dressing room for several minutes before finally agreeing to come out onto the stage. Meanwhile, a pro-Smith audience in Detroit antagonized Sparks to the point where someone launched a beer bottle that connected with Hilly Michael's head, slicing the skin just above his left eye. The stitches stayed in for a week. Both acts were relieved to finally part ways on December 12th, but for Sparks, the disillusionment and frustration persisted. Earlier in the tour, Ron would blow off some steam at some point during the night by violently smashing his piano bench Townsend style. Most of the time, this destructive stunt served its purpose without incident and became a reliable crowd pleaser for an audience that was quickly gaining an appetite for punk rock gestures. On occasion, however, Ron's fury got the better of him, resulting in a police encounter and a broken leg in Chicago, and an overturned table occupied by horrified Columbia execs in New York. The final show took place on New Year's Eve at the Santa Monica Civic Center, where one of the opening acts was a new heavy metal outfit called Van Halen. Reviews of the Big Beat tour and the album alike were mostly negative, which came as a genuine shock to Hilly Michaels, who was proud of the work he felt lucky enough to have been a part of. I was kind of in a mild state of shock myself, Hilly later told Dave Thompson. I thought and viewed Sparks as the eighth wonder of the world and just couldn't figure out why everyone was so mean to us. Columbia Records had high hopes for Big Beat initially. In October and November of 1976, they put out press kits and they set up interviews with local radio stations in more major US markets. Reviews of the album itself ranged from unexpectedly effusive, rarely, to disappointed, to downright indifferent. Pete Mikowski of Sounds wrote, It doesn't sound like Mr. Sparky's piano screwing a metronome anymore. This is Sparks singing like Russell's balls have dropped at last. It sounds real, not like Joni Mitchell at 78 RPM. Jan Isles in National Rockstar seconded this view. Rupert Holmes has managed to rekindle Sparks' creative flame with this recording. Rolling Stone was less impressed, saying Sparks had, quote, abandoned the speeded up music hall approach and opted for less outre rock. No one seems to care. At the other end of the spectrum, critic and longtime fan Ira Robbins complained the album, quote, sounded like a concession to America and calling the outing a mistake. Some Sparks partisans had some opinions on the matter. Tony Visconti offered the following. I'm going to try to do a Tony Visconti here. American music's always been meat and potatoes, straight up rock. It's part of the American culture. It's like Bowie. Bowie's actually a non-rock musician, but he uses rock to express himself. 
They couldn't do what they do in America. It's just not American-style music. Yeah. Is that Tony Visconti, or was uh, that more Bernie Sanders? Rupert Holmes, the album's producer, thought the record was good, but that the timing was off. He told Daryl Easley in 2008, The sound and attitude of Big Beat was probably well ahead of its time. As we were recording it, the music scene was tilting towards really lush disco. Instead, the lean, spare sound of Big Beat emerged into a world that was temporarily mad on sweeping strings and saw salt brass. If Big Beat had been released a few years after that, it probably would have been received not only enthusiastically, but gratefully. As for the Mail Brothers themselves, their views on the album have softened in the years since their initial deep disappointment. In 1982, Ron told an interviewer that the critical and commercial response to Big Beat had, quote, shaken our confidence. Although he conceded that, although he didn't think highly of the album, he was unsure if, quote, it's for musical reasons or just because things were not particularly groovy then, end quote. In 2008, Russell called Big Beat an unfairly slighted record. Salmeida later confirmed that after performing the entire Big Beat album in their now legendary 21 by 21 UK concert series, that Russell told him that he and Ron indeed, quote, really fell in love with the songs again. To these ears, Big Beat sounds like a necessary and cathartic wiping clean of the slate. Ron and Russ had backed themselves into a corner with the increasingly ambitious and elaborate records of the island years, and they were thirsty for a new direction and fresh inspiration. Their new surroundings, their new band, and the nascent New York City punk-slash-new-wave scene had inspired a new aesthetic direction for the brothers. The brief period between the island years and the Moroder rebirth from 1975 to 1978 allowed Ron and Russ an opportunity to try new things, to be unafraid of failure. Today, Big Beat sounds surprisingly modern in its economy and its willingness to let the rhythm section do most of the work. After the Big Beat tour concluded, Ron and Russell stayed true to their now established modus operandus and dismissed each of the Big Beat players from the Sparks payroll, only briefly retaining Salmeida. There was initial talk of a Big Beat live release, but Ron and Ron scrapped this idea as they felt the performances just weren't up to snuff. As 1977 dawned, Ron and Russ put their noses back to the drawing board. Contemplating their next move, the duo would ultimately try to reinvent the musical wheel yet again on their following record. And as we'll see, they would learn from those successes and failures as well. I want to thank you all for listening to my little obsessive fanboy podcast. I'm finally happy to take up the reins again. I can assure you that it won't be another six or seven months until I bring you episode 19. From sunny Pettisi, here in the lovely Republic of Panama, this is Christian Huey bidding you all a heartfelt hasta la próxima. Hello, Sparks fans. It's me again, Computer Girl, from the song Computer Girl. A fellow Sparks fan was kind enough to share some rare recordings of Sparks rehearsing for their 1976 Big Beat tour. You're about to hear a song called Christmas for Two. It's a very rough recording, be aware. Humans remain fallible. One, two, four.